Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. It's great to be back together again today, this morning. For the past several weeks, we've been trying to navigate through what has been a very challenging, a very tumultuous, and a very difficult election process. And we've been trying to do all that through the eyes of of a Christian living in the kingdom of God and not as somebody living in the world. Now, I think for some people, that's been very encouraging. It's been very faith building, you know, which really helps helped us to see, wow, you know, I, I get I get where my place in the world is. I understand what things should be most important to me and what things maybe should be of lesser importance. And I really see the importance of of putting God first and making Jesus king. I think for other people, it's been very challenging and maybe it's really tested your allegiance. Do I really put all my faith in God? Do I really put all my trust in Jesus? And do I really see the kingdom of God as being of most importance to me, more so than things of the world? Not that things in the world are unimportant, but in terms of of what gets my allegiance, where my heart really lands, yes, it does need to be in the kingdom of God. And as I've been saying from the very beginning, I'm not here to pass judgment on the pros and cons of any particular president or any particular administration. The bottom line is it's all of the empire and has the things of the world most in mind. But we should be of the kingdom of God. And we should always be thinking, what does God have in mind? And what is best for the kingdom of God? Now you might have strong feelings as to where this has all landed. And that's fine, as long as your strongest feelings are with the kingdom of God. So today, I'm not here to talk about the reality of a president or the reality of an administration. What I want to talk about today is the reality of Jesus. And I want to talk about the reality of the kingdom of God and and why that really is of most importance. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 14. Just like a politician, when Jesus was building his ministry, it was really important to him for people to hear what he had to say. And it was very important for people to to know where they stand. So they would hear what Jesus had to say, what his position was, and then they had to make decisions. Wow, what do I believe about that? Where do I stand on this, that, or, or whatever it might be? And so to be able to do that, Jesus did what many politicians do. He would go out and he would... He would speak publicly and he would draw to him a large crowd of people. But because Jesus wasn't a politician, what came out of his mouth was oftentimes very, very different and very unexpected. There were no promises to make your life here better than than you could ever possibly imagine with the hopes of maybe drawing more people to him. But in fact, he oftentimes seemed to do just the opposite. He would say things publicly in front of a large crowd that were so challenging that you could just see 
people leaving, people, you know, the first the back row and then, you know, moving more towards the front. That people were like, no, this is crazy. This is nuts. I'm not going to follow this. So why would he do that? Well, let's give a listen to what he had to say in, in one of those times. And that might give us a, a clue as to what he was trying to accomplish. This is chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, seriously, this was his message. He finally gets the crowd. And the first thing he says is so challenging. I can't imagine anybody in that group thinking, wow, this is great news. Let's go ahead and, and sign up for this. I mean, it was just, it was so crazy. Why would he do this to a crowd of, of, of hopeful followers? Well, there's a certain thing that happens in crowd dynamics. So let's, let's picture any kind of crowd. Picture, uh, picture an NBA basketball game. So you go to the arena and there's thousands of people. And, and right there on the floor, the people that get those floor seats, right? They pay thousands of dollars for that floor seat, or maybe those first couple right after. And man, they are so into the game. They know every player. They know every stat. They follow every moment of the game. I mean, they're, they're right there locked, locked into every single thing that's happening. Then you go further away from there. You get like towards the you know middle of that crowd. And they're, they're fans. They're, they're somewhat interested, but... They're going to get a beer. They're chatting with their friends. They're, they're watching the game. You know, they're really looking for like the, you know, big breakaway plays where everybody's like, oh, they stand up. I mean, that's, that's what they're into. <clears throat> then you get further away and you get way up into the rafters. And those are the people that maybe got a free ticket. Maybe they won some contest and they might not even be there for a basketball game. It's just something that they can get out and do. So you've got varying degrees of interest. Jesus had that too large crowd he had a large fringe element there were people on the outside of that of that crowd ring that were there just because there was something going on maybe he was going to perform another miracle it was a show but then as you got further in towards the center those ones that were right there with jesus man they were like they were tuned into every single word he said they were serious those are the ones that jesus was interested in he wanted the very sincere true followers and so with Jesus what you see and the thing that really distinguishes him from every other crowd gatherer is that he was never a crowd pleaser in any way at all and I also don't think he was very much interested in what the poll numbers were either but he he chose to focus on the the truth only and so after this nice warm welcome he begins to address the crowd and deliver his message. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And so what he's beginning to say here is, you've got to count the cost. Before you sign up to, to be one of my followers, know what you're getting yourself into so that a week, a month, a year down the line, you're like, oh, well, you know, we didn't know this was coming or, oh, well, we didn't know you expected that much sacrifice or, or that much commitment. So know what you're getting into. But then he tells another story in verse 31. Or suppose a king 
is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So now it gets more challenging. Wait, give up everything we have to follow you? And how does that tie in with this little story about the kings? Well, picture this. God is the king with 20,000. You're the king with 10,000. Eventually, you're going to meet God, right? There's going to be a judgment day. And so God is much more powerful than you are. What is the smart thing for you to do now while that day is still a long way off? Hopefully, right? It's make peace with God. So in the illustration, the weaker army would send a peace delegation. Hey, we want to make sure right now before we meet that everything is okay. Guess what? Jesus is your peace delegation. So we make peace with God while hopefully actually physically meeting him is a long way off. We do that through Jesus. So in these two stories, the first part, Jesus says, think it through, count the cost, make sure. But in the second part, he says, you'd be really smart if you did it. But then he says to do it, you've got to be willing to give up everything. And then he gets to the heart of the message. In verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And what he means by that is if you're in this crowd and you're even remotely interested, then listen carefully to what I'm saying. You know, we think of salt today as something you sprinkle on your food and, you know, maybe it tastes a little better unless you have a, you know, low sodium diet, then you stay away from it. But, but back then, salt was not used to sprinkle on your food and make it taste better. It was a preservative. You would pack meat or fish in it and it would keep it fresh for a time but then it would absorb all the odors and, and maybe certain toxins from the food and you had to throw it out. It was no longer of any use. The Bible says that we as Christians are the salt of the earth. So that means to be effective in, in preserving people, which means helping them know how to get to heaven, we have to, we have to stay salty. We have to stay fresh. And so Jesus says, you've got to be on your game all the time. Where's he going with all this? If you're going to follow me, then you've got to know what you believe. And you've got to know why you believe it. Not just right from the beginning, but you've got to see it through all the way to the end. There's no bailing out. And for that, you're going to need a solid foundation. So what is the foundation of your faith today? What do you believe and why? I mean, look at some of the things that we're expected to believe, right? It can be a little crazy to some people. An unseen God, a virgin birth, I mean, a host of miracles throughout the Bible, God in the flesh, resurrection from the dead. I mean, I, I think that's asking a lot. But what makes this all so believable? And what makes Jesus real for you? You know, I think so often, we look at the things that God has done in our lives and, and maybe things that have changed in our lives as proof solid that Jesus is real. Is that a good idea? Is that a good barometer? I mean, the bottom line is lots of people have great accomplishments. Lots of people graduate high school and graduate college and, and get great jobs and, and make great discoveries and, and help lots of people. 
And lots of people change things. Lots of people get out of drugs and alcohol. Lots of people get out of a, a really bad situation in their life and turn their life around and become just, you know, amazing people. So the fact that they, they've had great accomplishments or the fact that they've really changed things in their lives, does that always mean that God was directly intervening? Now, don't get me wrong, because I do fully believe that God changes things and God changes us and, and that God does open doors. But what about the atheist who's changed things dramatically in their life? What about the atheist who has had amazing accomplishments and helped so many people with scientific discoveries or, you know, some sort of invention? If they have no faith in God, was it God who brought about that change? How would we know? And I'm not saying that I do. I'm just, just saying. How do we know that something that we say is so God was really so God? Do we look at scriptures like Romans 8.28, right? So, you know, Romans 8.28, we're all familiar with that. It says, God works in all things. God works for the good of those who love him. And so we say, well, because God loves me, then, then everything is going to work out great for me, right? And so that's why, you know, when you apply for the job and, you know, it didn't seem like you were going get, to get the job. And then all of a sudden, guess what? I got the job, right? It's because God was with me. Or, you know, man, I was like running late to my doctor appointment. And man, this parking lot is always full. And as I'm driving in right there, right by the front door is a parking spot. I pull right in. Or Kohl's is having a sale on toasters, right? It's like, you know, 80% off. So I drive over to Kohl's and, and look, there it is. There's one left on the shelf. Man, God is, that's so God. God is with me. But what about the people that don't love God? So if they don't love God, do they not get those things? Is that parking space never available, right? Is there, is there never a toaster on the shelf? I mean, how, how do we view things like that? Should God doing things for you really be the measure of your faith and belief in God? What if God's not doing the things that you really want God to do? Forget the parking space, forget the toaster, forget, you know, what if it's something really big? God, you know, I believe in you, so I, I know, and what will be a real test of my faith and just ironclad conviction, you know, I'm, I'm going to put this before you and I know it's going to happen. What if it doesn't happen? Then what about your faith? What if you're missing those, man, that's so God moments? Does God become less? Is Jesus no longer real? So what... What makes Jesus real? When you look at yourself in the mirror, what is it that, that tells you, I get it. I'm a believer. I think a better barometer than what God is doing or what God is not doing for you at the moment is what God is developing in me. And that sometimes takes a little longer. It's more of that inner character development that Jesus taught. And, and that's what I want to keep looking at right now. So look at me in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to begin here in verse 1. And I'll catch up with you in a moment. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so here we have Jesus again with the crowd, but it's a little different than the crowd that we looked at before. 
In fact, this was his very first crowd in his very first sermon. And what he calls our attention to here, I think, will, will define and shape just how real Jesus is for you. Let's read on. Verse 3. Blessed are those, I'm sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they're persecuted, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he says this word blessed, blessed nine times. What does he mean by that? Well, this the, the word is makarios in the Greek, and it describes a believer in a very fortunate position from receiving God's grace or God's favor. So it's, it's really what you have because of your relationship with God and that God is with you. And so let's walk through this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, so why would that be a good thing? Because you have the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit is just another way of saying, of saying blessed are you who are humble. What is humility? Well, in short, it's really, it's knowing that it's not all about you. It's getting the focus off yourself and putting it somewhere else. And for a lot of people, that's not an easy thing to do, especially not in this world, in this society. I mean, we can be very self-focused, self-absorbed. We can be very selfish. Have it your way. You deserve it, you know, because you're worth it. And that's pretty much the opposite of the way Jesus taught. There's a scripture in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, and it reads as this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he starts off here, Paul starts off this particular verse by saying, this is how we should be. So if we can get off our throne and realize that it's really not all about us, then we're going to gain a totally fresh and better perspective on life. It's amazing what your eyes can see when you're not focused on yourself. You're able to see other people a lot more clearly. You're able to see Jesus a lot more clearly. And I think the clearer we see Jesus, the more real that Jesus becomes. And you're in a better place to live in God's kingdom. The second thing, he says, blessed are you who mourn. When do you typically mourn? Well, usually it's when you've had a loss, you've suffered some kind of loss or, or you're hurting. And, and hurt is associated with pain and we hate pain. 
We try to run from it. We try to flee from it. We try to avoid it. When we get it, what's the first thing we do? We medicate it. What can I put on this? What can I take for this? Right? So we don't like pain. But why does Jesus say we should, we should embrace this particular kind of pain? Because it puts you in a really great position to see and experience the compassion of Jesus. And when you're able to feel that deeply, then Jesus becomes real. Well, the next thing, he says, blessed are those who are meek. And I love the way he addresses this in the scripture. He says, this is in verse uh, five, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Really? I mean, I thought this was like survival of the fittest. Don't the, don't the strongest inherit the earth and the meek just, you know, curl up and die someplace? I mean, meek in our society is not a good thing. We associate oftentimes meek with being weak. Well, they might sound the same, but they're very, very different. When I think of meek, meek is like an incredible power, strength, under control. It's like a dam. If you've ever seen like a big, a big dam, you know, there's like all this water, maybe like the, you know, Hoover Dam, you've got the Colorado River and it's like flowing at this, you know, incredible, you know, speed and force and it, it hits this dam and it just stops. But the dam allows just enough water to get through so that it doesn't back up, but then it uses the, the power that is generated from that to, you know, light up lights. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. Do you realize how much power is given you by the Holy Spirit? I mean, there is power to, to do just about anything and to change just about anything, to have an amazing life. But the key is humility. It's that meekness. It's knowing how to use this immense power that God has given me in a righteous and godly way. That power is available, but you've got to use it in the right way. So another word for meekness would be self-control. Paul said that just because something is permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial. So yes, there's a lot of things you can do, but is that really the best thing to do? So to, to be meek, practice humility, pray for wisdom, exercise self-control. And as you grow in these crucial areas, guess what? Jesus becomes more real. Then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because you'll be filled. Be filled rather. That, that makes perfect sense. We all want to be filled, right? So when I'm hungry or thirsty, guess what? I don't want like a Dixie cup full of water and I don't want a cookie. <laughs> I want a meal and a big glass of water, right? Because I want to be filled when I'm really yearning for that. One of the greatest promises that Jesus made is that if you seek him with all of your heart, you're going to find him. There's a scripture in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. It reads like this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, this is particularly talking about prayer. But I think it can really apply to, to other things when it comes to righteousness, whether that's making big life decisions or building your marriage or your family or dealing with life pressure or peer pressure or dealing with things that drag you down. It could be sins. It could be life issues. It can be whatever stumbling block. 
It says, seek and you'll find the righteousness of God. And when we get that kind of clarity that, okay, I really see, you know, God showing me what the right thing is, what, what, what the wrong thing is. God's really making it clear, like what that decision should be. Then you'll be filled with this deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And the reality of Jesus becomes a lot clearer. Then he talks about mercy. Blessed are the merciful, because they'll be shown mercy. Mercy is most often associated with forgiveness. It's, it's something that I think we all know is important, but something that we often miss. You know, we, we spoke before about meekness being this power under control, and it involves wisdom and humility and self-control and, and, you know, all those things working together. Probably the best example of that is in forgiveness. Because there's nothing more encouraging that you can give than forgiveness, and there's nothing more encouraging that you can receive than forgiveness. Because it turns anger and hurt into healing and peace. And it helps you to overcome feelings of anxiety and depression and rage. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to completely let go and move ahead. And it's as important as love, faith, joy, hope, compassion. And in fact, forgiveness embodies all of those things. We have good reason to get to this place of forgiveness. Besides what it does now, there's even more to think about. In Matthew 6, verse 14, we read, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So the merciful find mercy. And there's this, there's this weight off of your shoulders. And when you understand just how much God has forgiven you, that makes Jesus a lot more real. Then he talks about in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. What is that? And what does it really mean to be pure in heart? Is there anybody that is 100% pure in heart? Is, is your heart completely pure? Is, is my heart completely pure? I mean, what would that even look like? Aren't we all sinners, right? So isn't there a part of our heart that's maybe not 100% pure? Will we ever have a 100% pure heart? Maybe not. But what is God looking for? Well, I think I know what that heart is. And we're going to see it right here. This is in Psalm 24, beginning in verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord, the vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, the God of Jacob. So a pure heart is not always perfection, but it's integrity. It's where you put your allegiance, where you put your faith, where you put your trust. And if you, with all sincerity, are putting your faith and your allegiance and your trust in God, even though you're not going to be perfect, 
I think God views that as a pure heart. Your hands are clean. They're not stained with sin. Your eyes are on God, not on the world. That person knows they're walking with Jesus. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I think this one pulls all the others together. Because they all talk about seeing God, but this talks about being in the family of God. If there was only one thing that you could say about Jesus, I think probably the best thing would be peacemaker. And that really is what the, what the cross is all about. Because of our sin, we were in conflict with God. And so the cross changed all that. It restored that broken relationship. It, it allowed us to have peace with God. Remember that story that Jesus told, that, that peace delegation, that was Jesus. But now it's our turn. We who have been made peaceful now have a chance to make peace with others. Who are you at odds with? As we speak right now, who are you in conflict with? As God has made peace with us through Jesus, we're called to make peace with each other. And as this happens, your relationships, whether they be in the church or out of the church, Jesus will become much more real. You will see that my heart's changed, my attitude has changed. People that I hated, people that I never even wanted to speak to, now I'm, I'm talking and, and we have a friendship. Jesus becomes real. When you start seeing those kind of things happen in your life, blessed are the peacemakers. And that really is what marks us as the people of God. And then lastly, he said, blessed are the, those who are persecuted. So why did Jesus save the best for last? He says, fortunate are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Why is that? Why would anybody consider it a good thing to be persecuted? Because standing up for what is right, according to God's standard, no matter what anybody else thinks, says, does, and then be willing to accept the repercussions that might come from that. Okay, so taking a stand for things with a biblical foundation is not always met well in this world. But when you do that, it's probably the best indication that Jesus is real. Because let's face it, why else would you do it if it weren't that Jesus is real? So don't be so concerned with what Jesus is doing or, or not doing for you at the moment for that answer, you know, do I really believe in Jesus? Go, go deeper. Learn to practice humility. Embrace his compassion. Learn the self-control. Seek that meekness that he talks about. Forgive freely and sincerely. Seek a pure heart. Be a peacemaker and eagerly stand up for your convictions. And as you mature in these areas, you will know it's not me anymore. It's Jesus. And at that point, for you, Jesus becomes reality. Amen, guys. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcast.